Let me tell you, chemistry is nothing like our high school chemistry. Nobody's doing the worm or letting (laughs) us watch Star Wars. episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the tri-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm an artist located outside of Richmond, Virginia, where I'm recording on traditional Powhatan land. I am your friendly neighborhood Philadelphia science gremlin recording on traditional Lenape land. Today, we're learning about an 18th century Dutch painter who's all about the pussy cats. Pussy cats. <laughs> <laughs> and also a uh, 20th century motorcycle riding mechanical engineer. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. So, for those of you who might have caught last episode, it was kind of depressing. So depressing. Yay for our 50th episode. Like, I don't think we could have gotten it worse except for, like, dead animals in the mix. Like, it had everything else. <laughs> so I am I am super psyched to learn about your mechanical engineer. I mean, one, I don't think you've covered one yet. And two, like a motorcycle? Like, one of, like, like a modern day one? Or, like, they were the first to develop, like, one of the first motorcycles? Or, like, what are we talking about? No, she just, she just really loved motorcycles. Okay. So she was like a badass being a scientist and also fixing up and racing motorcycles. All right. Well, I'm sold. So who who, are we, who is this mysterious woman? Who is, who is this mysterious woman? Her name is Beatrice Schilling, and she was known as Tilly. I mean, it's hard to be on a motorcycle and sound badass when you roll up as Beatrix. That's true. So uh, Tilly... She was born March 8th, 1909 in Waterloo, Hampshire, England, your favorite place. Okay, spoiler, she is born the same year that my person dies. Oh, no! I hope it's after a long life. It is after a long life. Maybe your person is actually the reincarnation of my artist. That would be a really interesting reincarnation. That would be super interesting. Okay, so we're over in England, where I love their murder mysteries. You love them so much. I do. I do. We're going to start this story by saying her dad was a butcher. Okay. As a child, she was fascinating with fixing things. She would use any money she had on tools. Her toy of choice was not a doll, but Meccano, which is a model construction system. Oh, Okay, cool. Yeah. It's kind of like kinetics, but with like actual metal rods and gears. Mm -hmm. So not what you would expect from, you know, a little girl in England, but whatever. Yeah. By 14, she owned a motorcycle. And also somewhere around that time, she dropped out of secondary school. Okay. And her parents were like, yeah, that's cool. Or any, any info on that? I, yeah, I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) It just happened. I mean, again, her dad was a butcher, and I don't know what her mom did. I don't even know if she had a mom. I mean, she had a mom, but I don't even know if the mom was in the picture. Yeah. She died young. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All I know is that she was like, I am not about this life. So she instead took up an apprenticeship under a woman named Margaret Partridge, who I could probably do an entire episode on as well. Mm Mm-hmm. 
She was an electrical engineer whose business would partner with the Women's Engineering Society to employ and teach female apprentices. Okay, that is awesome. Right? When I read that, I was like, there, are pro- there were programs like that back then? Like, what? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's out of this world in the time. Again, it was 1926 that this happened. So you're like, well, like, that's, that's pretty ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. It was through this apprenticeship, actually, that Tilly became one of the first two women to study engineering at the University of Manchester. It, like, pipelined her into a program. And she earned her Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering in 1932 and then continued on to achieve her Master's in Mechanical Engineering in 1934. Mm -hmm. What? Congratulations. He just graduated. Also. It's the Great Depression. Yeah. Great Depression and war. She also, while she was doing that, though, is... She had time to complete a motorcycle racing while she was at university with the university's, like, I guess, motorcycle club. I didn't realize there was a motorcycle club. Mm -hmm. She became one of three women ever to earn the Brooklyn's Gold Star for doing the race over, like, 100 miles per hour. And I couldn't find the name of the other two women. So Brooklyn's Racing is a circuit in Surrey and was later used as an airfield during both World War I and World War II. Mm -hmm. She eventually hit 106 miles per hour. And for the non-heathens, that's 65.9 kilometers per hour. So is it basically like a flat level surface, maybe paved, where you're just going like as fast as you fucking can? Yeah, it was It was like an oval shape. So if you go too fast, obviously, like you're going to like wipe out. But it was, it was like 1920s paved. So it wasn't okay. anything like ours. Like there was like, it was like a dirt dirtish concrete situation so. a little a little rough okay yeah so she gets out with a shiny new graduate degree and then goes right back into the university life her research position at the university of birmingham again because it was what i guess they called the great slump is what they called their great depression it was around the same time mm-hmm. and then there the focus was on supercharged single cylinder engine like engines and it didn't last that long so i didn't get into it because she was eventually recruited by the Royal Aircraft Establishment in 1936. Mm. She uh, joined war efforts. Yes. She started as a technical writer because as a woman doing war efforts, that's apparently the only thing you can do. What is a technical writer? What does that entail? It's like, I mean, it depends on what he's writing about, if that makes sense. Are you writing like manuals? Yeah, you're writing manuals or you're writing up research that's been done via, like, the government and, like, their resources and kind of walking. Oh, so it's, like, creating mechanical, like, how-to publications. Yeah, or, like, a a write-up of how we used that particular, um, those resources and what we found. It's just a communications job. Okay. Yeah. Um, And I guess this is about the time she met her future husband, George, George Naylor. He was a bomber pilot for the uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment during World War II, and he ended up being flight lieutenant and was awarded the Flying Cross, which is a pretty big deal. Oh, okay. There's an anecdote that says that she refused to marry him until he also won a gold star for the track that she did. (laughs) I mean, like, you really need to have standards. You do, yeah. And you know what? He got it. It was 1938, so that same year that he got the gold star, they got married. Oh, that's sweet. 
I know. And it's so beautiful because they were like two little motorheads in love. They worked on motorcycles together in their home like their entire marriage. Mm-hmm. Like, that's great. That's awesome. You're like, babe, can you pass me the socket wrench? Like, <laughs> I love how this is your second episode in a row that's like really going after like couple goals. Yeah. I like... I didn't really want to do a couple goals considering the shit that I've been going through, but I thought this was really sweet. Yeah. And I wanted to. I wanted to celebrate it. I thought that was cool. Someone's got to be happy, right? Yeah. That was Tilly. Anyway, 1939, she was promoted to a senior technical officer and the leading specialist in aircraft carburetors. Sure. <laughs> cool. I am not mechanically inclined at all i don't know shit about cars or other things they mix air and fuel together for like internal combustion engines so it's like heat and pressure manipulation of air and fuel to make the engine go vroom vroom okay thank you thank you that is perfect (laughs) megan car mechanic terms perfect I'm really not here to tell you, teach you mechanical engineering. I am also really shit at it, but she knew what she was doing. What I am here to tell you about, though, is Beatrice's orifice. Really? Yep. Is that a technical term? <laughs> Technically, it was not called the orifice, but that is what it was coined. Because <laughs> that just rolls right off the tongue. Oh, my God. So let me explain. Yeah, please do. (laughs) I saw that and I was like, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. There was a problem with a few of the aircraft models that the RAE was using, the Royal Aircraft Establishment. Mm -hmm. Rolls-Royce, actually, the car uh, manufacturer, made an engine called the Merlin. And it was placed into two different aircraft models. So one was called Spitfire and the other was called Hurricane. Okay. And the particular engine, the Merlin, had, there was a lack of foresight in its creation. So when the plane drove down in what was called the G-force maneuver. Not to be confused with the G-spot maneuver. (laughs) Anyway, when they do the G-force maneuver, the entire plane including the engine, would experience negative gravity. So things gravity doesn't exist, basically, at a point. Which, when you're, I imagine when you're relying on gravity to help force through different fluids and components through an engine, that might fuck with the engine a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, the carburetor would flood. Okay. Which would then lead to the engine just cutting off mid-flight. Not fun if you're the pilot or anyone else. On the aircraft? Nope, nope. And if it was allowed to flood for too long, the engine would cut out permanently, and that was really not ideal. Yep. So, oh, oh yeah, meanwhile, German aircrafts and their fancy direct fuel-injected engines were flying G-force maneuvers around Britain's aircrafts, circles around them. Ooh, okay. Not great. So, Tilly stepped in, as you do. She designed a flow restrictor basically the size of a thimble. And it was later redesigned into, like, a flatter washer kind of deal. But the purpose of it was to allow just enough fuel flow to keep the engine going and not flood out during the G-force maneuver. Mm, Okay. So the equivalent is, like, that little spigot thing that comes in in my olive oil jar to help, like, restrict flow, kind of. Yeah, that's a a great – yeah. 
That's that's basically what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she actually traveled herself to install these restrictors to each like location, and she mm-hmm. would give the frontline crafts priority first. So she would be like, "Okay, where are we going? Which part of England?" Yeah. Um, which is really cool. Like you featured other scientists who can have contributed to war efforts, mo- mm-hmm. more so here in the United States, but it's always typically an administrative role. That's exactly. just what women have been delegated to. And I, I covered one artist and it was the same thing. She had, as a photographer, like an administrative role. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. This was a little more like, no, I'm going to do it myself. Thanks. She's a badass. Mm-hmm. She's great. So, yeah, the restrictor was officially named the RAE restrictor, but it was nicknamed Miss Schilling's Orifice or... <laughs> Those bastards. Tilly's Orifice. Again, bastards. <laughs> It was given by the engineer who led development of the Rolls-Royce at the time. So Yeah, because he was probably so embarrassed that they fucked up. <laughs> Essentially, it was like, here, our product has killed and injured a lot of people, and it's interrupting our war efforts. Can you fix it for us and then allow us to apply a sexually aggressive nickname to it because we literally can't handle the woman showing up and coming up with a solution that not only saved thousands of lives, but is also considered a contributing factor of our victory in the war. We're not mentally capable of allowing this without belittling your work. So thanks. That's that's literally all that is. Yep. In a nutshell. Yep. yep. I just... I'm so mad. I'm so mad for her. I don't. I imagine she just like laughed it off. I guess. Yeah, as she's like installing it, someone's like, "Oh, you know what they call it? Har har har!" And she's like, "Ha ha ha!" I'm sorry, asshole. Do you do you want to die? I don't have to install this for you. You can. <laughs> sorry, what did you call it again? Well, oh yeah, that's what I thought, motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> it's fucking great. Let me let me tell you though. I googled Beatrice's orifice at work without thinking. Oh my god, <laughs> that's some weird. Wait, wait. I imagine like weird Victorian porn. <laughs> oh my god! In the two seconds it took to load the results, my heart like stopped. My dro- my stomach dropped, and I, like I didn't even think before I hit enter. I was just like bloop. Good news is that what came up was just her picture and a picture of her carburetors and, like, the actual, like, uh, restrictor itself. But close call. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because they probably have auto filter on because it's, like, Uh, a professional (laughs) setting. I'm about to go into my own computer and Google Beatrice's orifice and see what goes up. Yeah, that was a a close call. It could have been real bad. Yeah, you you don't want to get called into, like, HR. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> I have a podcast. <laughs> you know what? I feel like if you're crafty enough, though, you might be able to pull it off with anything. <laughs> it's like if you're a writer and you're like doing like a murder mystery, you're like, okay, well, how would someone poison them? Like, you Google a lot of weird shit when you're a writer. This is true. Yeah. This is very true. <laughs> oh, my God. But, yeah, she uh, she won an OBE for her work. Order of British Empire Award in 1947. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like our Purple Heart. Okay, cool. Yeah. And 1945, the war ended. New technology took over aircraft engines, so her restrictor wasn't really needed anymore. Mm-hmm. She did not become obsolete. So she had her hands in everything. So she was working on intermediate-ranged missiles, developed better brake mechanisms for wet runways, supersonic aircraft and rocket propulsion. She was everywhere. 
Well, yeah, because by the time the war's over, like, what, she's in her late 30s at that point? Yeah, she can do whatever the fuck she yeah. wanted. She's still young. Yeah. And then she might have also worked on the aerodynamics of the sled for the 1968 Olympic British bobsled team. Oh, okay. They didn't win. Italy took gold for both divisions, but oh, whatever. Yeah. It's cool. It's still cool that you had, like, a fucking mechanical engineer like her be like, help. Yeah, there have been no artists that I have covered that have had any ties that I'm aware of to any of the Olympic Games. Yeah. So, yeah, I told you this was short because in 1969, she retired. And then November 18th, 1990, she passed away due to spinal cancer. Damn it, Milana. I, what? Okay, look, at least, at least she had a good ass life. Yeah. She was born in fucking 1909 and died in 1990. Not bad. Not bad. I'll grant that. That is 91 years. Do you know what right? she did in her retirement? Did they have a family at all? I don't think she had a family, no. I think she just, like, relaxed and, like, worked on her, like... She was just, like, a tinker. That's all she did her whole life. Mm-hmm. So she would obviously lend herself to, like, random projects, like the bobsled team. But, like, she was just enjoying herself. And that's what you want. You want to just enjoy your retirement. Don't judge me. Don't no, judge her. it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I am... Um, I'm not entirely clear on my person today, but I don't know if she technically retired at all. I think she might have just kept working up until the end. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. You gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, each their own. So who do you have? Like I mentioned last episode, it was a little heavy. We talked about Nazis and cancer and concentration camps and infertility. And there's so much tuberculosis. Oh, my God. Never ending. Like, that was our most tuberculosis-heavy episode, like, to date. So, today, there is none of that on my end. None of that. Zero things. Instead, I just have cute, fuzzy kittens. Kittens? Like, so many kittens. Like, dozens of kittens. Orange kittens, brown kittens, white, orange, and brown kittens, all the above. That sounds like my heaven. It it really is. Today's a fuzzy feel-good episode. I said I was going to do it last time, and it came through. I'm so proud of you. I'm so fucking proud of you. You did say fuzzy animals. And I, yeah, I, I, I vetted them. I, like, kind of, like, you know, looked into it a bit because I'm like, I don't need any tuberculosis surprises, like, down the road. <laughs> I don't need this in my life. No, no. <laughs> we are good today. So I am covering one of the most highly regarded Western painters of cats, 19th century Dutch painter Henriette Rahner Knip, who also, bonus points, like encouraged her daughters in the early 1900s to become professional independent artists as well. Fucking good for her. Yeah. So we're, we're feel good in two aspects. So one, I mean, we're talking about kittens. And like, I might not be a cat person, but who doesn't want to look at paintings of kitty cats? Okay, do you guys want to know what happened when my cat had kittens? Oh, my God. Oh, my. Okay, first apartment Milan and I had, we shared together. It was, like, a little over 800 square feet, right? (laughs) I am staying late at school one evening. So, like, legit 2 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, I get a text message saying, hey, when you get home, don't open the bathroom door. There's a cat in there. So naturally, when I get home, the first thing I do is open the bathroom door and, like, perched on the dividing wall between the sink and the shower is this cat. And we're both looking at one another like, what are you doing here? Well, fast forward, kitty cat was pregnant. So we went from, like, 
no cats to one cats to five cats like real quick. It wasn't five cats. It was four cats. It was a lot of cat. It was a lot of cats. <laughs> and you were gone the majority of the time, so it was me and four cats in this eight hundred square apartment. And I'm like, I don't even like you're fuzzy and you're cute, but I, like okay. <laughs> But, like, at the same time when they were, like, really young, some, when I did come home, I would walk into you cuddling them in my room, all of them at once. Briefly. I would come in and be like, oh, you're, oh, you're so, so, okay, all right, we're done here. No, I, okay, well, that was a weird window where I just walked in and you were like, oh, the baby. Well, I don't know if Henrietta had any experiences like us and kitty cats in her life. <laughs> You know, yeah, she probably did. <laughs> she was just all about painting these, like, lively little fluff balls of destruction. So that's that's the first part of destruction of our feel-good stuff. And then second, like I mentioned, she taught her daughters to be financially independent. And she was financially independent herself. So while her work isn't really feminist, taking charge of her own mm-hmm. career and doing so financially, like, that's right. feminist as fuck to me. So that's why we're talking about her. She's really into painting medium-haired cats, medium and long-haired. I, like I said, I'm not really a cat person, so I'm sure other people can look and be like, oh, that's such and such cat, and that's a such and such cat she's painting. I have no idea. I just know she painted, because of her clientele, pretty much, like, quote-unquote, like, pedigree cats, if that helps. Yeah, they're all gorgeous. They're all very fancy cats. Is what they are. Fancy cats. Yeah, like, if I was alive in, like, the second half of the 1800s, you know those cats are better fed than me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Just saying. For sure. So before we jump into Henriette's life, I I am going to say her biographical details are a smidge light. Mm, so fair. her art at this point is like 150 years old, but there is still a really robust buyer's market for her work today. They're gorgeous. Of course there are. Who wouldn't want a Victorian painting of kitty cats over their fireplace. I know, I'm just right? saying. Like they're they're nice paintings. They're nice. And items they've sold for upwards of like tens of thousands of dollars in the recent market. Jeez. Yeah. So Henriette's work it's <laughs> it's respected. But in terms of academic interest about her, uh, it's like crickets. Crickets. Who what her work is let me just say, like technically her work is banging. What do you mean? I know, right? So I I think this might be a few things. I think one might be a language barrier. There might be a good bit of stuff written about her just in Dutch. You know, hasn't been translated over to English yet. Right. I think it could also be attributed to the fact that Henriette primarily painted cats and kittens. And that's a subject that's very easy to dismiss as not being serious enough. That's just trash. Who wouldn't take cats seriously? I know, right? Like, obviously, the internet loves them. <laughs> but, I mean, we even we see that type of art snobbery today. You know, there's not right. something that it's, like, layered with, like, nuanced meaning, which is all, honestly, it can be art bullshit, but whatever. But for, for Henriette's work, we are headed back to 1821, Amsterdam, the Netherlands, where Henriette was born into a creative artistic family. So, father was a painter. He was second-generation artist. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what her mother did. So Henriette's parents, their relationship was probably a little bit scandalous because at the time Henriette was born, her dad was still technically married to another woman. What? 
Yeah, yeah, he'd been married to a French woman who specialized in animal paintings. What? <laughs> uh, fell in love with a Dutch woman. And the like, irony of that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I have no idea if mom herself was an artist as well. Yeah. But they, they had Henriette, they had another son, and the couple, they never married at all. Oh. Yeah, but I mean, think of divorce in the early 1800s. That's pretty wild. That's, yeah. I wonder what had to happen for that. But. No, like my grandmother got divorced in like the 1970s in like a small town and like, oh, that was <gasps> a little bit scandalous. Like my mother got picked on because her parents were divorced. Because that's insane. Yeah. A little little drama llama there. Right. But what is noteworthy about the family is that there is a tradition of passing on the trade of being an artist to both sons and daughters. Oh, nice. There's no discrimination here. No, no, because, I mean, often it was very common to just teach the trade to the sons, but Mm -hmm. Grandpa, he was like, nah, like, you know, I specialize in still lives and wallpaper designs. Like, I'll teach that to my kids, both his his two sons and daughter. Right. And, like, later on, Henriette's dad, like, taught her, and she passed it on to her own children. And Henriette's aunt, who she's named after, I mean, she was a very accomplished flower painter in her own right. Oh. (laughs) Flowers. Yeah, they're very lovely, and I think the next time I need, like, a feel-good episode, like, I might cover her. Okay, not bad. Keep her in the back pocket. So with the the family being working artists, like, I'd wager maybe they were, like, middle, maybe lower middle class. Mm -hmm. And, like, economically at this point, the Netherlands is doing pretty good, very prosperous. There's a developing, like, modern middle class in this industrialized nation. Right. So influx of money, and that influx of money creates a wealthy class that can help pay for art from families like Henriette's. Oh, nice. So yeah. she's raking it in. She's uh, she's playing the game. Well, the family is, yeah. Obviously, things are profitable. I mean, I'm sure there might be times that were a little bit more lean than others. Right. But it was actually sustainable. There was that sustainable, you know, drive of people who wanted, you know, custom art, commissioned right. art. So growing up, the family did seem to move around a lot. And I, I think that can be attributed to the fact that her dad would go like where the paying clients were. Okay. He he would teach painting and drawing skills to like wealthy ladies. Okay. So took them around the Netherlands and also for a period they were in France um, and Paris, but eventually settled down in kind of like a rural area of the Netherlands. You got to follow the money for sure. So Henriette's dad, it was pretty cool. So he started teaching her at a young age. By the time Henriette was four years old, he was like, all right, like, you can walk, you can talk, you can mostly poop by yourself. Like, <laughs> you can come in the studio. <laughs> Probably learn how to paint before she learned how to poop. Yeah, I know, right? Well, I mean, you got to wipe both brush and your butt. <laughs> so from a young age, you know, very much encouraged. Uh, a noteworthy birthday gift was when she was 11. Her dad gave her an easel. Oh, Yeah, like, that's sweet. That's super sweet. So it's no surprise that by the time Henriette was about, like, 15 or 16 years old in the, like, late 1830s, like, she's exhibiting her work internationally over in Germany. Oh. Yeah, I I have no contacts on, like, the details of it. Right. But, I mean, she had work over in Dusseldorf. <laughs> Dusseldorf? Okay, I know. I took two years of German in high school. I should be able to say it better than that. But that's where we are, okay? Don't judge me. I love you. We've already established my proficiency in English. And guess what? (laughs) I'm not getting top marks. Okay? I know these things. 
You know these things. But yeah, so like growing up, Henriette, she's learning to paint alongside her brother. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would even collaborate on pieces together. I think that's, that's pretty cool. I just fought with my brother a lot when I was growing up. Yeah, I didn't collaborate with anything with my brother. No, no, definitely not. Well, we would collaborate to collectively sneak into the living room on a Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so you could scope out the tree and the presents. That was always really exciting. <laughs> uh, but that was about it for sibling uh, unity. And then honestly, after that, there is no mention of her brother at all in the rest of the material that I came across. <laughs> oh, no. We're like, okay, all right. Let's hope not a falling out, hopefully. I have I have no idea, but for the sake of this being feel good, I'm gonna I'm gonna say they lived happily ever after. Why not? <laughs> Why not keeping keeping the fuzzy alive? So yeah, and and what she's painting, it's very traditional. So she's doing like landscapes, some peasant figures, and then eventually she does branch out into doing interior scenes and depicting uh-huh. farm animals and then domestic pets. Aww. And, like, one key quality to Henriette's work and to Dutch painting as a whole is this, like, down-to-earth realism. Mm. And that just means painting what you see and, you know, doing so in a precise, like, arguably academic way. Right. And, like, the, the works they adhere to perspective, to scale, you know, the colors are realistic, but they're not oversaturated. People and animals, they're anatomically correct. There, there really is this core desire to capture the content in the most honest way possible. Yeah, there's definitely no straying from traditional technical standards. Yeah, and, and that's at least in terms of technique. Now, in t- terms of content, maybe things were, you know. <laughs> Loosey-goosey. Yeah, that's not what we're here for because I'm not analyzing, you know, 18th century Dutch paintings outside of Henriette's right now. <laughs> So, I mean, as a whole, technique, very important to Northern European artists. And this is the same region where modern oil painting was invented. Oh, so there's some fancy background to this. Yeah, there's a really rich history. I mean, this is where we get, like, um, Rembrandt, and we also get, like, Vermeer, who did, like, the girl with the pearl earring. Mm. So, you know, very strong heritage of oil painting. Right. In the Netherlands, and then also Belgium, too. Right. Which... Basically, if anyone's talking about Dutch painting, like, they're talking about the time of, like, Vermeer, which is, like, 17th century golden age, or they skip ahead to Vincent van Gogh, Mm. which is, like, the second half of the 1800s. Some heavy hitters. Yeah, so there's a good many of 18th and 19th century Dutch painters that, outside of, like, the Netherlands, we really don't know about, and, and Henriette's one of them. Right. Going back to Henriette. In her late teens and early 20s, this is about the 1830s, 1840s at this point, like, she spurred on to be more creatively productive because her father is losing his eyesight. Oh, no. Yeah. So in order to help support the family, like, she's like, great, I need to make more work, you know, to have this money coming in. Right. And presumably her brother's helping out, too, doing the same. Right. So... By the time she's 17 in 1838, like, Henriette is consistently having her work shown and sold through annual exhibitions across the Netherlands. Stop! What were we doing at 16? I don't know, being stupid teenagers? (laughs) Uh, good times. Trying to get through chemistry class? I don't know. (laughs) We were. We were trying to get through chemistry class, which... God damn, I feel like I'm not going anywhere because right now I'm trying to get through chemistry class. I know. Yep. That's a whole different thing. Keep going. Full circle. 
<laughs> um, all right. So she was not fucking around with her best friend in chemistry class when she was like 16, 17. Instead, she's like, oh, yes, I'm just in another national exhibition selling my work to support my family. Oh, look at her. Like, That's cool. Like my first job was at a Waffle House. Mine was Subway. There you go. Eat fresh, baby. Jeez. <laughs> anyway, so that's not what Henriette's doing. She's not stuck <laughs> at some, like, entry or low-wage, entry-level position working at, like, a restaurant. <laughs> like, she's hustling her art instead. Good for her. And, yeah, hustling hard. Like, things are, are going pretty well. Now, about 10 years after this, she's, like, 27, and at this point, her parents, they have both passed away. Mm. Don't know what from, but let's go with old age and um, maybe peacefully in their sleep while they were cuddling one another. Aww. Why not? So, in her late 20s, you know, parents have passed, and she's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go to Amsterdam. Mm. That's, like, her New York City, essentially. Like, that's where all the fun's at. Why not? They always end up in Amsterdam. I know. So Henriette, like, she does well there. Not long after arriving, she's admitted as, like, the first woman, like, quote, working artist member of, like, a leading Mm -hmm. artist society. And the society, think of it like a union or, like, an artist, like, guild. Mm. Leroy Jenkins. No. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I've heard of that in passing. I know it's a meme. That's all I can tell you. (sighs) I'm going to have to send you the video. All right. I look forward to that. <laughs> you keep me up to date on shit. It's, I mean, up to date. It's ten years. Ten years ago is is. I'm gonna have to send you things a little bit more topical. <laughs> okay. So most recent like book club meeting I was in. You know, we always shoot the shit about pandemic just because we're all in different parts of the world. And it was like, hey, has anyone actually played like the pandemic game? And someone was like, oh, yeah, the board game, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm like, this is older than this. is like maybe 10 years ago. It was like a Flash game. <gasps> oh, I remember. Yeah. I I don't know if I've told you this before, but on the occasions I would play it, I would always insert my, like, either virus or bacteria or, like, spores, like, name as Milana. <laughs> so as you're playing and your, your goal is to spread this pandemic and be the most efficient as possible... <laughs> you would get like headline updates as things happen and be like Milena has now been discovered in the Netherlands Milena has now infected 50% of North America <laughs> Milena has now been declared a pandemic by the WHO <laughs> I just I didn't think I told you that before but that made me feel old I was like, no, not the board game. I'm like, the Flash game from ages ago. That totally foreshadowed, like, what happened. So. Oh, my God. That's perfect. We'll include a link to that in our show notes for those of you who have not played that old game. It's really fun. It's really fun. That old-ass game. Yeah, so I know. I'm a little dated, but that's okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, back to my 19th century Dutch painter. <laughs> Speaking of dated... Yeah, so she's in Amsterdam. She's doing pretty well. And this is when Henriette starts shifting the content of her artwork. Mm. Because, you know, country paintings are, like, nice and everything. But her buyers, her clients, they're like, that's cool. Um, Can you paint my dogs? Puppies! 
Yeah, so she's like, shit, okay. Like, you know, companion dogs, hunting dogs, that was really popular. So she's like, sure, cool. I guess this is what I'm painting now. And so that's what she focuses on. It, It is. It's pretty cool. And, like, by the time she's 29 in 1850, Henriette, like, she gets married. And it's it's pretty unique because her husband, he's a little bit on the frail side. He becomes her manager. Oh, okay. And she becomes the family head of household. Like, she's the breadwinner. Oh, damn. Yeah. So it's her, it's her husband who's working for her, and then they have five kids together. Oh, nice. So it's not like she's just providing for them as a couple. Like, no, they have a good-sized family. That's insane. It's super insane. And it's only her. Yeah. I don't know if maybe once the kids got, like, old enough, maybe they started, like, helping out because she trained all of them as painters as well. Yeah. But as a family at that point, they had all relocated south to Belgium and they were outside the capital, Brussels. And, like, no surprise professionally, she's an active member of several of the artist societies. Yeah. And with her husband helping out, like, he's helping to facilitate her having the most studio time possible. <gasps> she's his boss. Yeah. No, she is. She's totally his boss. Nice. And it's cool because she's cranking out, like, dozens of work. And they're being shown not only nationally, but regularly in Germany, in England, in France, and in the United States. What a fucking life. Like, I mean, she's totally hitting, like, the bougie market. Mm-hmm. You know, like, with the rise of, like, global capitalization because of industrialization, like, there's a really large growing middle class. And that's a really good-sized market that she's able to tap into. Very cool. So she's doing this. And so for about 20 years after her marriage, you know, focusing on dogs. And I don't know if maybe someone asked her to do something different or she's like, I need to do something different. But either way, she's like, I'm doing cats. <laughs> Time for cats. (laughs) Time for cats. Yeah. I Again, I don't know what prompted this. Could be a few things. Uh, I mean, one, she could just have really liked cats. She had to really like cats. Especially if you're going to, like, observe cats and have cats in your studio and just paint, like, over 200 paintings of cats. Like, you better like them. Yeah, you better. Especially, like, baby cats like that who fuck with everything and destroy everything. They're little balls of chaos. Yeah, that's a good point because she did lots of kittens. I don't know if maybe she'd be like, she'd hit up friends or maybe like a local like animal rescue group and be like, hey, can I like borrow your cats? And like, don't worry, I'll be back with them in like five hours. Like, <laughs> That's for you. <laughs> that's as long as I need to get what I, I, I need out of them. Jesus. So, yeah, she, she, she most likely liked cats. She might have wanted a change because she'd been painting dogs for pretty much like two decades. Oh my god, the smell in her studio. Yeah, I don't I don't know for the dogs if she would go to her clients' homes and like sketch. But like when she got to the cats. Cats, that's a good point. I don't, maybe she has a really fancy like kitty litter box. <laughs> in the 1800s. <laughs> okay, yo, someone like must have pimped out like 18th or 19th century kitty cat litter box. Like you know someone was making money off of it. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, can you imagine, like, a a really special, like, ceramic tray one with, like, traditional blue and white, like, porcelain designs on the side and, like, some some gold gilding. 18th century cat litter boxes. Like, (laughs) someone's making that into a luxury object. Yeah, so I, I don't know what prompted the switch because really at that point she was doing dogs. And when she was 57, like, she even had the Queen of Belgium. 
1878 reach out and be like, hey, can you paint my lap dogs? Stop. What kind of dogs? Okay, a terrier, which they're adorable. I love them. I have one myself. And then an evil chihuahua. Okay, so two little shits. Got okay, it. Okay, subjective. All right. Two little shits. But the, the chihuahua, most likely, yes, evil shit. <laughs> I'm sorry if you have chihuahua. That's cool. They shake a lot. The devil's inside them. The devil's inside Just trying to get out. <laughs> you know what? We all love our animals. So be it. Yeah. So, like, obviously, if she wanted to stick to doing dogs, like, she could have. She has a market for that. But she loved cats too much. Yeah. She switches gears. You know, she starts spending countless hours, like, observing the cats, creating studies of cats and kittens. She even has, like, this glass-fronted enclosure to have in her studio so she can observe the cats, like, playing. Oh. Yeah, she was definitely a cat lady. And there was definitely, like, a market for this. And at the time, she was pretty much the only one who was specializing in paintings of cats. (laughs) You giggle. She made fucking bank. I'm sure she did, but I can only imagine the business card. (laughs) So, Henriette, she is making bank. Usually I can find an appropriate inflation calculator. I was not able to find a historical inflation calculator for Dutch 19th century guilders to either euro or USD. But we know that Henriette went from charging more than 200 guilders for a work in the 1840s to over 2,000 guilders in the 1880s. What? Stop! I mean, I really, like, can't math, but, like, that is... A very nice increase, whatever percentage that may be. That's insane. The work that the people are paying so much money for, it's just like these normal size paintings. You know, maybe they range from 12 inches to 23 at the longest dimension. And they're just these like really fluffy, adorable kittens in these upscale interior scenes just doing like stupid like kitten stuff and being cute. Destroying everything. Yes. Oh my goodness. There's one where there's, like, the mom cat just, like, reclining and her kittens are around her. And it looks like she's on, like, a silk pillow. And behind them, there's, like, one little devil clawing up the curtain. This is why you don't have curtains when you have cats. Like, oh, my God, you little white fluff ball. Stop it, you bastard. (laughs) Do you know how expensive those curtains are? (laughs) Be like, it took me seven months to get them shipped from China. (laughs) But so, yeah, so... They're very cute. They're very fun. Henriette's working in these light, feathery brushstrokes. Because they're from wealthy families, they're like these pedigree cats. I have, I have no idea if that's true. They just look like a white cat, a brown cat. They look like medium-haired domestic cats. I know there's one she did. It's like a Maine Coon cat. So that's like a really fluffy cat. Yeah. Oh, those guys are big. I love them. Also, think about how one got in the Netherlands in the 1800s. <laughs> They're even, I mean, hard to find today here in the United States. But so, yeah, so she just does all these different kind of scenes of these cats. Again, usually it's a mother and the kitten's playing around her in just various domestic um, setups. So like by a couch, by an ottoman with some music sheets and an instrument. There's one with like a globe. She does singular paintings of cats, too. There's a really cute one and it's a little kitten swatting at like a, an artist's like brush. And it's, like, right next to a paint palette. So the title is The Young Artist. Aww. Yeah. So. Blah. Yeah, that sound you made is, like, that describes them really well. 
They're cute. They're they're indulgent, you know, and they, they definitely serve the taste of like a middle to upper middle class like society. And they, they do reflect comfortable, serene domestic life. Like that's the audience that she's really going for. Oh my god. Like any other artist we've covered, sexism was an aspect of Henriette's career. Uh. Yeah, so historically within painting, women have been relegated to still lives or floral work or miniature painting. Blah. Yeah. Henriette, like, she wasn't part of the contemporary schools at the time, you know, which means, like, groups of men banding together as painters and being like, oh, we're going to create our own art movement. Right. And that exclusionary aspect isn't a surprise because usually these groups of men think they're painting, like, proper art or serious art or like i.e. like the type of art that's not for women some sort of magic boys club yeah it usually is very much a boys club we still see that today but like whether or not Henriette was interested in any of that like we can speculate on it but she did go down the expected traditional path of creating like feminine quote domestic art mm. and even if that was due to, like, the broader social, like, pressures for her to do so as a woman artist, she played the game and she won. So much money. Yeah. So working professionally for over 60 years, she was able to not only support herself but her family, and she won numerous awards along the way. Nice. All the accolades she had. She won awards around the world. She was featured in the 1876 Philadelphia World Fair. Get this, Henriette received commendations, like, for her work by not one king, but two. What? The king of the Netherlands. <laughs> that was when she was 53. And then king of the Belgians was like, wait a minute, I don't want to feel left out. Here, you can have an award, too. That's like his own section on her resume. Yeah, I mean, I realize I'm still a little young in my, like, professional practice. But today, uh-huh. I cannot claim to have any accolades from any royal figures like at all <laughs> none you just gotta get you uh to Meghan markle wait she's no longer a part of the family or some shit like that never mind don't worry about it don't worry about it you don't need the royal family they're dicks come back to me when like i'm in my 60s and 70s and we'll see i believe we'll see. it if anyone can you can yeah well we'll do a podcast update how's that like <laughs> 60 years from now <laughs> Where are they now? <laughs> so, King of the Netherlands, King of Belgians, loving her shit. Henry and her, her kittens, they, they were really hot shit. I mean, yeah, they're cats. Yeah, so over the course of her career, Henriette, she was creatively and financially successful, you know, received commercial praise for her work, had a super impressive list of clients. So we're talking numerous kings, an emperor, a duchess, a princess... I think part of it was just, like, word-of-mouth recommendations that snowballed into her landing, like, these prominent royal commissions, like, from monarchy within the Western Europe. That's great. It's crazy. Yeah, so obviously she was very successful and uh, was well-regarded when she passed away at the age of 88 in 1909. Oh, man. Which, after everything you've learned about her, it would be pretty wild if she was reincarnated to your mechanical engineer. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if those two... (laughs) Are they kindred spirits? (laughs) We go from, like, Victorian cat lady to, like, like a motorcycle award winner. (laughs) Totally different side of the coin. That's fucking great. (laughs) 
But so, yeah, so today Henriette's work is featured in a, f- a few museum collections in Northern Europe, really uh-huh. between the Netherlands and Belgium. And outside of that region, there's not really a museum presence for Henriette's work in like Western Europe or America, but there is a very large buyer's market for her, her okay. work privately. Yeah, because who wouldn't want a picture of a cute kitten, like a painting of a cute kitten? Like, I would want six. People wanted six back in the 1870s, and <laughs> fast forward, like, almost 150 years, and people still want that. Still want six, baby. It really is timeless. Really timeless. <laughs> so. Her cats, obviously, that's a good accomplishment, but for me, it's more so the fact that she took her skill set She taught her children, and out of the five, a son and two daughters went on to be professional artists themselves. That's amazing. Even though the content of Henriette's work isn't feminist, how she pursued her career and developed her work and the financial implications of it, like, that is really feminist. And that's why we're talking about 19th century Dutch animal painter Henriette Ronner Nip. Nice. That's what I got for you today. That's so cool. There's no crimes against humanity, no political upheaval, uh, no life-threatening illnesses. Just professional success, a long, fulfilling life, and some fluffy goddamn kittens. So That's all we ever want. I'm going to try not to accidentally make next episode really depressing because I tend to be good at that. Yeah, I have a feeling that's what's going to happen. We apologize in advance. I'm going to try not. I'm going to try not. Um, so yeah, so that's what I got for you guys today. As always, if you've made it this far, we definitely appreciate it. So, Milan, if people want to go see pictures of these pussycats or of your scientist's orifice, where can they go to see more? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Facebook and Instagram are both at myfavoritefeminist. We have a Twitter. That's at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-M-E-G-A-N. Oh, my goodness. I almost forgot how to spell our names. <laughs> You can listen to us on any major podcast platforms, and it takes two seconds to like, subscribe, let us know, either by comment section or email, which is info at myfavoritefeminist.com. What is the one tradition your family has that has been passed down? I don't know how much of a tradition this is. We'd always open one present on Christmas Eve. I always looked forward to that as a kid. That's a tradition. Yeah, that was always kind of fun. It was always something small, though. Something small. Yeah. You got to leave the big one for tomorrow. What about you? Mm, I think the paella. Oh, that's right. I love your family's tradition of holiday paella. It's so great. Any and every holiday or birthday or celebration. Paella. I love fish and I love carbs. And that's like the perfect combination of them (laughs) in a spicy, delicious, tomatoey, savory goodness. Our family is partial to the seafood paella, not the traditional Valencia. But that's a, I mean, nobody really loves snails. (laughs) I'll eat them. You can give them to me. One day I might make one. We'll do snails and rabbit. (laughs) Rabbit's so bony, though. Then we'll stick to the fish. It's fine. Says me, the most terrible vegetarian of them all. (laughs) I try, guys. I try. She tries. It's not great. Not when I'm around, for sure. Bad influence. Oh, no. On that note, we'll, we'll see you next time with me and Mila and her bad influence. So, until then. Bye. Yeah, didn't you have to take chemistry when you were doing, I don't know, any one of your other college degrees? 
<laughs> I mean, I tried chemistry, but that was like a dark point of my life. <laughs>